Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Have a seat. Well, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Uh, This morning, we're beginning a new series called Ecclesia or Ecclesia. Uh, the marks of a healthy church. The, the word ecclesia is basically the word for church in the Bible. And the reason that we're doing this series is because there is no small amount of literature and people out there who will tell you how to grow a dynamic church. If you go into Kurong, you will see bookshelves full of material saying that they found the secret to growing a healthy, dynamic church. And uh, in the 1980s, you had the Seeker Movement, and the Seeker Movement, pioneered by Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, it taught that in order to have a healthy, dynamic church, what you need to do is you need to make sure that everything you do inside the church um, is accessible to people outside the church so that people will come to church. And when people invite people to church, it's not a real big culture shock as people walk in the door. Now, there's some truth to that, but most people would say nowadays that the seeker movement is basically dead. Uh, Then in the 2000s, you had the emerging church movement. Now, the emerging church was basically a conversation about what sort of church is going to emerge given the change in the cultural dynamic that's happened in the West. You know, it used to be that the church occupied a position of power and influence in Western civilization, but that's no more. And in the 1990s, there used to be this term that was thrown around a lot called postmodernism. You don't hear that much nowadays, but that was the the term that was thrown around a lot during that period. And so the emerging church was basically this conversation about what type of church will emerge to reach these emerging generations. The only thing is, is that no emerging churches now exist And many people emerge themselves out of orthodoxy and are actually into liberalism. Well, for the last 10 years or so, there's been the gospel-centered church movement. You've probably seen all these books in Kurong if you go in there. Gospel-centered marriage, gospel-centered relationships, gospel-centered this, gospel-centered that, gospel-centered parenting. And I, I resonate with that. I think there's some real value to that. But often what I've noticed is in the gospel-centered movement is people love talking about the gospel and they sort of become connoisseurs of the gospel. But are we still proclaiming the gospel and sharing the gospel with people? Now, as you're sitting there, I can see that most of you are bored already with with my little journey through the last 30 years of church in the West. And you're going, I don't even care. I don't care, Timon. I don't care about purpose driven church, emerging church, whatever. I don't care. Let me tell you, the only people who care basically are pastors, you know. And pastors, we, we spend a lot of money and we read a lot of these books. And, you know, let, let, me, let me get you in on a little secret. The reason why we care is because often as pastors, we can get our validation for our lives from the numerical success of the church. And so as a pastor, you're always looking, what's that model? What's the secret? What's the secret source that'll make your church explode with growth? Well, can't believe this, but I've been here for 10 years now. And after 10 years, this is what I've discovered. Ready? Are you ready? 
This is what I've discovered. I can't grow the church. <laughs> Let me say that again. This is what I've discovered. I can't grow the church. Now, the reason for that is there's a number of reasons. The first reason why you, I can't grow the church is because of the place where the church is planted. The church is planted in a secular culture which is just overwhelming. And everything within our secular culture is seeking to distract us and suck the spiritual life out of us. Interesting, I was reading a book this week called The Elimination of Hurry by Mark Comer, and um, he was saying that with smartphones now, people's attention spans have been shrinking. And so now the average person, which doesn't do well for me preaching here this morning, but the average person's attention span is seven seconds. A goldfish's attention span is eight. So now we are less, less than goldfish. And it's just overwhelming, the secular culture. And, you know, I was reading this week, <clears throat> I was reading this week that in Federation of Australia in 1901, 96% of Australians identified themselves as Christians. In the 2016 census, it was down to 56%. Now, they're not real confessing Christians. These are people who tick on a survey when asked about their religion, they say, well, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm Christian. Probably not confessing Christians. But I don't see any reason why that secular slide will actually not continue if there isn't a revival or if Jesus doesn't come back. So I can't stand against this just by tweaking certain things and putting certain things together. I don't expect that we'll be able to you know, go against this landslide of secular culture. But further, the reason why I can't grow the church is because the Bible actually says I can't grow the church. Paul actually said, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. And in the book of Acts, when you read about the movement of the early church, you read that it was Jesus who added to the church daily those who are being saved. And it's not just my desire for us to gain a big audience of people who will come from other churches. What I want is I want genuine life transformation. I want people to stand up here and give testimonies of how they were once in darkness and now they've come into light. They were once in bondage and now they've been set free. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Thessalonians, he said, you are my crown, you are my treasure, you are my joy. Because the Thessalonians had turned from serving idols, it says, to serve the living and true God. I want radical life transformation. The sort of transformation that I hear from my brothers in Nepal, where they'll say, you know, we were once in darkness. We're in the darkness of Hinduism, but we've been set free by Jesus. I can't bring that. I can't do that. It takes God to do that. God can grow his church, and he has. All throughout church history, it's been about God growing his church. But what we can be is while we can't grow the church, we can be a healthy church. We can be a faithful church. And churches can be more or less healthy, just as we as individuals can be more or less healthy. You know, a number of years ago, I went with Hannah climbing up Mount Lofty. Have you climbed up Mount Lofty before? Have you tried that? Like, I've... I went climbing up Mount Lofty with Hannah. I got 900 meters up Mount Lofty. 
This is a few years ago, and I said, Hannah, I'm going to have to stop. I feel sick. I can't do this. I had to lie down on the side of the, of the track while other people passed me. I, I kid you not, a one-legged man hopped by me. And I thought, that's my story now. I'm less fit than a one-legged man. And so that was a real wake-up call to me, and I decided that I needed to like, make some changes in my lifestyle, in my eating, in my health, and all those sorts of things. And you know, just as we as in our human bodies can be less healthy or more healthy, churches can be less healthy or more healthy. So what leads to a healthy church? Well, a healthy church is, healthy church, what leads to a healthy church is healthy members of that church. You know, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, and he's dealing with a sin issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We tend to think that my spiritual life and the condition of my spiritual life makes no difference to the church. That's not true. The condition of your spiritual life here this morning is either leading to the health of the collective church or it's not. And so that's why we're going to be doing this series, The Marks of a Healthy Church. And as I've studied Romans chapter 12, I see in this passage these six marks of a healthy church. And I'm hoping that what you will do is you will take each mark and you will seek to apply it to your life so that we together as a church can be that healthy church, can be a faithful church, a biblical church that God will indwell and that God will use. I just feel like we need to pray. Let's stand on our feet and pray. Because we need God this morning. It's not going to matter how clever my words are. We need God to speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that you would work in our hearts. We've been given a challenge this morning to read the Bible this year. Lord, I pray that you would just... Just work in our church, Father, so that we would become a healthy church full of mature believers who love you and are walking with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take a seat. The first mark of a healthy church is this. I've got it up on the board here. We've got these six marks. The first mark of a healthy church is that a healthy church receives grace and responds with lives of surrender. So a healthy church receives the grace of God and responds with surrendered lives. A healthy church is a church that is bathed in the grace of God. The grace of God is all in a healthy church. It's bathed in the grace of God and then a healthy church responds with surrendered lives. Look down in your Bibles in Romans 12 verse one. I appeal to you therefore brothers, now, if you know anything about the book of Romans, the book of Romans is divided in two, and right here is the turning point in the book. In the first 11 chapters, Paul has been speaking about the doctrine of the gospel, but then he gets to Romans 12, and he's going to start to apply it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And from this point on, he's going to give instruction in how they are to live and what they are to do as a church. But notice what he makes his appeal on the basis of. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, he's speaking to the church, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Paul makes his appeal on the basis of the mercies of God. You know, every church that you enter has a particular culture. 
Some churches, when you go into that church, they're really formal churches. People dress formally, the building's formal, the sort of worship style is formal. Other churches are more contemporary and less formal in style. You know, it's interesting, if you're new here today, we should actually interview you to ask you, what's the culture of our church? <laughs> because just like a goldfish in a goldfish bowl, you know, you end up, you know, not really realizing the water you're swimming in. A goldfish doesn't even realize he's swimming in water. He's just swimming around happily. And we often come to church and we don't even realize what the culture is like in this church. And every church has a culture. It was interesting, a couple of years ago, um, Pastor Andrew was telling me how he was in New York and one Sunday he went to Tim Keller's church, Redeemer Presbyterian. And that church, it has like, it has, it's pretty formal, it has classical music. And Indy, his first child, was only a baby at the time, and as, as, as Indy was listening to the classical music, she fell asleep in the arms of Michelle. It was so peaceful and relaxing. Well, then Andrew went to another church that same Sunday, and as they went in, Indy was handed some earmuffs to go over her ears. <laughs> so you can imagine the style of music that was coming in that church. But yet, Andrew said, interestingly enough, in both of those churches, even though above the surface there was different styles, below the surface there was the same culture. And in a healthy church, when you lift up the lid, you will see that the engine of a healthy church is the same regardless of style. The engine underneath the bottom bonnet is the same, and what is it? It is grace. It is grace. The undeserved unearned mercy of God. As we saw a few weeks ago, love at its best loves us at our worst. And you might have had the worst week possible here today, but you are still loved if you're a believer because your standing before God is not based upon your performance, but rather it's based upon the performance of Christ on your behalf. That is grace. And Paul says, it is by grace that we are saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And in a healthy church, a healthy church teaches grace, bathes the people in grace, motivates people to obedience by grace, not by law, not by judgment, not by guilt, but by grace. We love him because he first loved us. And you have to guard grace in a church because our hearts are actually drawn to law. Our hearts are drawn to a Jesus plus something gospel. That's the natural bent of our hearts. And if you don't guard grace, you can be preaching the gospel. This is the funniest ironic thing. You can be preaching grace and yet in your life and in your heart, it, what comes out is law and judgment. And churches when they have law added to gospel, what ends up happening is this culture develops in the church where the church is just an altogether club. Everyone trying to put on their Sunday best and come with everything all together. But when there's a culture of grace, when we're resting in and standing in the unearned, undeserved favor of God and we're clinging to Christ and his righteousness alone, then what happens is we take off the mask we admit who we are. 
We're willing to admit our struggles and our sins and our faults and our failures and not play this game called church anymore. So in a healthy church, a healthy church is built upon the grace of God. And for 11 chapters, Paul has been in the book of Romans teaching the the gospel of grace. You were once the bad news under the wrath of God, but God set forth Jesus as a propitiation for your sin. He took the wrath that you deserve. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access into this grace that in which we now stand. And it climaxes in Romans 8 where Paul says, If God be for us, then who can be against us? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So a healthy church, when you lift up the bonnet, what you see is grace being taught. Grace. You were saved not by your performance, but by the performance of Christ. But in a healthy church, this teaching and emphasis on grace does not lead to license. It does not lead to people living any way they want. It leads to people surrendering and falling down before Jesus and saying, Jesus, command me. You are my Lord. Look down your Bibles in Romans 1 again. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Notice it's a plural, mercies, not just one mercy. It's unpacked all these mercies in the previous 11 chapters. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Paul here is turning worship upside down. You see, the people at this time that Paul wrote this, they knew a lot about worship. There were temples everywhere. Pagan religions were everywhere. Temples were everywhere. In Jerusalem, the temple was still standing. And so they knew about temple worship, and they knew that when you worshipped God, you had to present yourself before God, and so you had to come into the temple. It's fascinating when you compare (coughs) Romans 12 verse 1 with the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus 1, in Leviticus 1, it talks about the burnt offering. That when worshippers would come, they would bring a burnt offering, maybe a bull, or they would bring a, a sheep or a goat, or if they couldn't afford that, they would bring a dove. And it was interesting that the burnt offering was in order to make atonement for your sin so that you could be acceptable to God. And this is brilliant, isn't it? This offering of ourselves here, this sacrifice that we make, is not to make us acceptable to God. We don't surrender our lives to God to make ourselves acceptable to God. We're already acceptable by whose sacrifice? Jesus' sacrifice, once for all. That has made us, us acceptable to God. So our devotion, our living sacrifice that we offer is not to make us right with God. But when they would bring the bull or the goat or the sheep, or the bird, they would then kill that animal, and they would lay it on the altar, and it would be completely burnt up. Now, we don't get the power of this, really. 
Because in our culture, uh, we have like meat all the time. Like we eat meat often. I try to eat meat as often as I can. And, uh, and that's what our culture's like. We eat a lot of meat. But back at this time, it was rare for you to eat meat. You only did it on rare occasions, on celebratory occasions. And so, and so to take your precious possession, a bull, and slay it, and offer it up, completely burnt up on the altar, was a, was a demonstration of complete devotion to God. Complete devotion to God. Now notice what we now offer. We don't offer bulls and we don't offer sheep and we don't offer goats and we don't offer birds, but what's our sacrifice that we present to God? It says our bodies. We present our bodies to God as living sacrifices. We present ourselves to him and place ourselves on the altar and say, God, here I am. Here I am, all of me, God. You know, often we've had... um, Peter Pollock come and preach, and Peter gets in his South African accent. And Peter says, you know, there's one thing that God wants from you. It is you. It's pretty good South African, isn't it, Simon? (laughs) One thing that God wants from you is you. What's the appropriate response of worship to God? It is you. You offer yourself to him as a living sacrifice. He says that this is holy and acceptable to God. I find that that is absolutely fascinating. Because I don't know about for you, but for me, my surrender is often partial and incomplete. But God sees my surrender as being holy and being acceptable, pleasing to him. And he says that this is your spiritual act of worship. Or some translations put it like this, this is your reasonable service. Now, why is there such a difference in translations? Some translations say this is your spiritual act of worship. Some translations say this is your reasonable service. What's the difference in those two two perspectives? Why do translators, some translators choose that and other translators choose this? Well, it has to do with the word that Paul uses for worship. It's the word lutruo in Greek. And this word is the most common word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the LXX, for worship in the temple. And so Paul is picturing us here as a collection of priests before God, and he says the service that God wants from us, the reasonable service, and it's interesting that that word is actually the word from which we get logic, the most logical response to what Jesus has done for us is for us to offer ourselves back to God, to lay down our lives before him. In response to his grace, we say, God, here I am. I surrender all of me to you, God. So I wonder today, is your surrender up to date? Is your surrender up to date? Let me just share with you some thoughts on living a life of surrender. Living a life of surrender. You know, I think when it comes to surrender, there are crisis moments that God brings us to sometimes, where he brings us to this moment where he challenges us to put everything on the altar again. Because we often can stray, and sometimes I've noticed that people can stray so far from God 
But what God will do is God will just challenge people and he'll say, I want you to come back to me. And it's a time of consecration, a time where you say, God, I realize I've just been, I've got it all wrong. And you come back and you lay your life down again before him in a time of consecration and in prayer. Now, I remember um, in 1994, I was at a conference with some friends of mine and a year earlier, I'd become a Christian after reading uh, the book No Compromise by Keith Green. And, but I, in that year, I had actually strayed from the Lord again. And I, these sinful habits and patterns were in my life. And as we were away as a church at this conference, I just felt the Lord speaking to me, saying, Timon, you need to confess your sin. You need to come back to me. You need to place your life back on the altar again. And so uh, late after one of the rallies of the conference, I went into some of my friends who we were at the conference with and I said to them, I said, this is what I've been up to. This is the sin that has gripped me. Would you pray for me? And I confessed my sins to my brothers and they prayed for me. And I came back to the Lord and that night, as I went to sleep, I can only describe it as the presence of God was so close. God was so close to me. God had drawn me close to himself. You know, this is what James says in James 4. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Some of you here today have got so far off track that you do need a moment of consecration where you hear the voice of Jesus saying, I want all again. I want you to lay it all on the altar before me again. I want you to give it up all to me again. Secondly, I think living a surrendered life is daily surrender. Daily surrender. Living a surrendered life means handing over daily control over to the Lord Jesus. You know, one of the things that I do in order to live a daily surrendered life is I just say to Jesus, I just say, Jesus, here are my hands. Here's my heart. Here's my mind. Lord Jesus, take my future. Lord Jesus, take my eyes. I only want them to look at what you want them to look at. Lord, take all of me. Lord, and I actually just pray that to the Lord. Lord, take this. Take this, take this. Now you might say, that sounds ridiculous. But it's interesting, in, in Romans 6, Paul says in Romans 6, he says that we are to present the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. So I don't think that's stupid. I think some people here today, you, you have a problem with what you watch on the internet, and what you need to do is you need to, because of God's grace, say, God, I give you my eyes. Give you my eyes, Lord. Take them and use them. Take my heart, God, I give it to you. Use my heart, God. Daily surrender. But also, I think, also surrender is part of the sanctification process. Surrender is part of handing over control to God and allowing Christ to rule in various parts of your life. Yesterday, I was just journaling 
and I realized I was so anxious about some things. And as I was praying and as I was journaling, I realized at the roots of my anxiety was that I wasn't allowing Christ to rule in my heart. If you want the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, it's actually about allowing Christ to rule. And what God is in the process of doing in all of our lives, he's in the process of pointing out things, taking us through situations and circumstances where he'll bring us to a point where we will see the parts of our lives that we are still holding on to, the parts of our lives where we are ruling instead of Christ ruling in our hearts. And so this is the part of the sanctification process where we actually give up control and say, Jesus, I want you to rule. I want you to rule in my life. Some of you are so anxious, and it's because you need to hand over your family to the Lord. Lord, you rule over my family. They're yours. Lord, I'm so anxious for my future. I give my future to you, Lord. I give it all to you, Lord. It's yours, Lord. And you'll find that as you give up control, and you'll need grace to do that. Boy, will you need grace. You'll need grace in order to do that. That doesn't happen. That's not just the easy work in your heart to hand that over and allow Christ to rule. You'll need to say, God, empower me. Give me more grace. And the promise of James 4 is that he gives more grace. He gives grace to the humble, those who come in in humility and say, God, give me the grace. So this won't rule over me, but you will actually rule in this place of my life. And God is in the process of doing that in all of our lives so that he will rule and reign and so that he will come out and we will be more like Jesus. So this morning, where are you with your surrender? As one of my pastors used to preach, he used to say, the problem with living sacrifices is they tend to jump off the altar. Where are you today? Is the Lord speaking to you that you need to surrender afresh and have an altar moment? Maybe the Lord is speaking to you and say, you need to adopt the daily practice of handing your life over to me. Everyone should do that. Maybe there is an element, something in your life that God is saying, this this part of your life, this right here, is the root of your anxiety. And this is why you're not experiencing peace and joy because of this that you're holding onto. And you need to give up control and allow me to rule and to reign in that place. You see, if we're going to have a healthy church, a healthy church receives grace and responds with lives of surrender because a healthy church is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about a pastor, it's not about a name, it's about Jesus and Jesus alone. Because he's the one that builds the church. Glory to God, joy to the city. A healthy church is radically focused on Jesus. Surrendering to Jesus, giving all to Jesus. Oh Lord, we come to you today and Every heart is laid bare before you. We can't hide from you, Lord. We can hide from one another, but we can't hide from you, Lord. 
And so we just come to you right now and I just pray, Lord, we want you to be everything, Lord Jesus. We want it to all be about you and your glory, Lord Jesus, not about us at all, Lord. And in view of your great grace and mercy that we have received freely, freely we receive it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We receive it freely. We respond with lives of surrender. This morning, Lord.